and welcome to Rap Party with Prime Video. I'm Rihanna Dillon and in the booth with me, as usual, is my Pied Piper of nerds, my <laughs> nerd in residence, is Michael Leader. Hi, Michael. Well, Rihanna, that is music to my ears. Good one. <laughs> and hasn't it been nice with this series? We have been leading the listeners through the streets of filmmaking, along the way stopping in at various practitioners of the crafts behind the film and TV we love. And one of the bits that I've loved doing the most about this podcast is conducting all of these fabulous interviews and arranging all of these conversations about film and television. You're being far too subtle for me this week, Rihanna. <laughs> what is the craft we're going to be talking about today? We're talking about composition. So, Rihanna, as always, I like posing you a question at the you beginning do. of these episodes. Mm-hmm. So, what comes to mind when I say composer? I think John Williams. I think lots of people do, don't Yes, they? I think of Jurassic Park and basically anything to do with Steven Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think of Harry Potter mm. as well, because I have that as like one of my ringtones for one of my best friends. Oh, very sweet. Uh, yeah, and I also think about Hans Zimmer, mm-hmm. because you can't have a conversation about composers without including Hans Zimmer. But one that I probably listen to the most, that I just have on, would be Terence Blanchard, who works a lot with Spike Lee, The Five Bloods and Black Klansman. His music scoring is the one that I probably listen to just for fun the most. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you settled there on something quite different from the other ones you mentioned. So Terence Blanchard is quite jazzy yeah. in his arrangements, in his themes, but everyone else you mentioned are the, the big, the brassy, the mm-hmm. greatest hits of film music right yes. there, the ones that everyone can call to mind if they wanted to, the themes from Star Wars, E.T., Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, yeah. etc. Right? Did exactly. I nail that? That is, an, uh, that, that. Which one was that? that was, was that Harry Potter? That was Star Wars, obviously. <laughs> Clearly that was Jurassic Park, obviously, yes. <laughs> I, I need to make that clear for any of the other nerds in residences <laughs> from the union that might be trying to kick me out otherwise. <laughs> but I think about many other composers that have had these long relationships with filmmakers. As you say, John, John Williams and Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. go hand in hand. Yes. I think about Danny Elfman and Tim Burton. Oh, yeah. Where you could almost have a bit of a sort of fan theory that if Tim Burton isn't working with Danny Elfman, maybe there's something wrong. <laughs> or maybe that actually, after a while, maybe doesn't really hold water because mm-hmm. he worked with Howard Shaw on Ed Wood, which some people think is Danny Elfman's best film. And Howard <laughs> Shaw there, of course, known for Lord of the Rings, his big greatest hits but i love his score for redwood that's one where he brings in the theremin for a suitably 1950s b-movie filmmaker can you just explain to people what a theremin is because a lot of people i only know because i think i saw them using it on graham norton once (laughs) yeah well it's an electronic instrument isn't it where it's done around fields of energy so you're putting your hands within these fields one is the frequency and one's the pitch is it? I mean, it just makes no sense to me how something like that makes music, but it does, and it's beautiful. It, it's the sound of flying saucers. And so actually the landscape of composing music for film is really broad. Mm. Maybe our brain goes to those big, brassy hits, but actually there's all sorts of approaches, there's all sorts of traditions within that. And I think we're at a really fascinating point in time right now. We do have this tradition of the John Williams style, mm-hmm. but now we have this small community of musicians and composers who flip back and forth between making music for themselves and then 
they make film scores. And you lay some of these albums side by side and it's almost indistinguishable which one is a film score and which one is a solo work. I'm thinking of Johan Johansson, mm-hmm. famous for doing the scores for Arrival, his biggest film. Such a great film. But I saw him live at the Barbican a few years ago before he sadly died. And his whole vibe is so unique and he has such a singular musical vision that you can pick any piece of his music and it would be almost soundtracking a film inside your head. <laughs> yes. And you think of other ones, of course, two members of Radiohead have gone on to great scoring careers. Johnny Greenwood doing Phantom Thread and You're Never Really Here. Mm-hmm. Tom York doing Suspiria. Spinning out from the music you'd expect with Radiohead, but stretching their muscles in different directions, mm-hmm. perhaps. There's Mika Levy, who... Oh, Under the Skin. Oh, gosh. I was forced to listen to that soundtrack day after day after day when I first started seeing my boyfriend because he was obsessed with it. But actually... It makes that film what it is. It mm-hmm. really is the one of the most unsettling, creepy scores that really gets under your skin. But it does feel quite genre-defining in a way. It created another element of horror that I hadn't really thought about before when it came to the music aspect. It made me feel really creeped out, Michael. I couldn't... I'd, like, would you listen to that? I have it on vinyl. I would not revisit it. I think the Mika Levy <laughs> score I do revisit more often is Jackie. Right. The, the Pablo Lorraine, Jackie Kennedy yeah. film that she did after that, which is a little bit more melodic and atmospheric and a bit You'd less hope so. stressful <laughs> to listen to. You don't want to be listening to a, an album on your Sunday afternoon and then think about, for example, the scene of the baby on the beach and under the skin. Oh, you want to listen to music for fun, right? Is that what you do at home? Maybe? Yeah, I do. But also I think when I listen to film scores at home, I listen to them for not nostalgia as well like I often if I just need a pick-me-up I'll put on the Disney soundtrack or something and in the new Mulan film that's come out recently they don't have any songs in it it's not a musical but they do use tiny fragments of score throughout from the animation from 1998 and those were the moments that made me really well up because it was just such a gorgeous nostalgic throwback to when I was a child watching this for the first time so I really love all the different emotions that music can make you feel throughout a film. It's quite manipulative somehow, isn't it? Some people would say that, definitely. (laughs) A manipulative score can go a long way. But anyway, our guest today is, I think, very much within that modern tradition, somebody who would be composing anyway, Mm -hmm. but just happens to have found film and TV as their outlet for their work, right? Mm -hmm. I am so excited to talk to... Isabel Wallerbridge, mm-hmm. who is our composer this week. So we obviously know her really well from her work on Fleabag, which is already an iconic series, working alongside her sister Phoebe. And I think she had this incredible deep knowledge of the character before the series even became a thing, when it was a stage show. She lived with this character for a really long time. And I think all of that helped to make something really iconic, right? Oh, can I just say that that opening theme for Fleabag is just <laughs> incredible. In the landscape of themes, we mentioned Ennio Morricone and how he would use guitar. Mm-hmm. Very few guitars pop up, at least as you know, riff monster guitar mm-hmm. parts in TV themes and film themes. And yeah. that's exactly what Fleabag is. You can rock out to that theme. So considering what else she's worked on, I think that's so fascinating. I can't wait to hear her tell us about that theme. Also, she worked on the most recent Emma, which was with Autumn DeWilde mm-hmm. directing, who is already famous for her music-centric projects because she does a lot of music videos as well. And so that's something that I'm quite interested to hear, how that works when you have a director who really knows their stuff with music, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who will just say, here's the scene, let you get on with it. 
And the same with Rita and Virginia as well, because if you listen to the score of that, that's not a period drama score. Mm -hmm. It's so different. It so wasn't what I was expecting. I think this is what Isabel is going to be so brilliant to talk to about because she doesn't do the obvious. Mm -hmm. The rules seem to be completely elastic. Yes. You can do whatever you want as long as your collaboration with the filmmaker allows you to do it. It's just such a fascinating time to be a composer, it seems. So it's probably time to welcome to the rap party Isabel Waller-Bridge. Here she is. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us Hello. today. I'm looking forward so much to geeking out about music with you. <laughs> so I suppose to start with a very general question about the craft. At what point do you come on board a film or TV project? Well, it, it's different with every project, really. But ideally like to be on as early as possible, even before they've started shooting. And it's quite rare. I'm mainly on board at sort of assembly stage so I can visit the set. And then if I'm sort of writing sketches, sort of bits of music for people, then I can send them things and maybe people can play it on set and give it to the actors. And so yeah. that feeling of collaboration is really real from the beginning. That's my ideal. Mm -hmm. But with the turnarounds in TV, sometimes you're brought on like really, really late and there are lots of sort of extenuating circumstances that can lead to that. So I think there are times when I've been brought on when everything's shot and we're really, really sort of almost like nearing the lock and suddenly I have to sort of turn around Lots and lots of music and not very much time. Right. But when you're working to those time sort of limitations, you're really w running on instinct and you're very sharp. And that is also very exciting. And you can come up with some really good ideas and that can be very creative when it's fast. It's a very, very different process. Earlier is better for, for me. I much mm -hmm. prefer it. And what ideally do you want from your collaborators on a project? You might be having, as you say, there might be a set to visit. There might be scripts or even footage in place. Mm. But we love talking about feedback on this show. Oh, good. And music is something that everyone knows whether they love it or don't like it, but they can't really describe what they like about something. <laughs> mm. So when it comes to feedback and guidance, what do you like to get when you're starting work on a piece of music? I very rarely ask the director or the producers or whoever the sort of the big conversations are happening with usually it's the director I like to keep it quite small at the beginning because it's the director's vision that I'm really really interested in and when there is a very clear vision that's when it's very exciting and that's when I feel like I sort of know my role then my responsibility to bring the music to that vision to support that vision I think sometimes when it's a little bit more vague <laughs> you have a sort of different responsibility to then build a world together which can also be very satisfying but I'm very excited when someone has a really clear vision and then when we talk about music I tend not to want to talk about kind of instruments or things like that but really just to talk about feeling I don't like to be there when I'm first sort of playing that the very, very first bits of music, I sort of send them. But when you are present with people who are listening, I can tell within the very first bar how it's going to go, you know, because you can feel the temperature in the room, you can feel the body language of the person that you're watching who's listening to it. And I think with feedback, I'm not very precious because I understand my role as a collaborator. This is something that I've been kind of learning quite recently when I'm sort of writing an album is the role of your own ego mm -hmm. in a situation. And I think when you're collaborating, your ego, you really have to watch that. So I'm not very precious when I'm being given feedback because I really want the end result to be the, the most affecting for the director and for the writer and for the people that have sort of come to me with this work. So 
I think, you know, respect is always. <laughs> sort of, and I have been given some really wild feedback that, you know, and people will haven't really liked it. But you just have to sort of go, OK, that's fine. You know, it doesn't really it's just the sound's not working. I mean, I'm. it's rare that I'm like wildly wrong, like in terms of like a palette of sounds. So it's more kind of melodically something might want to change or if it's but I tend to talk about things in sort of height like do we need it to sound taller or do we need it to sound a bit shorter or wider or so if something needs to be a bit taller it needs to be a bit more vertical maybe the chord needs to be a bit more present sort of up I'm like I'm like lifting my hands to the ceiling (laughs) but I was just wondering what other sort of words that I use I don't think I've ever sort of said does it need to sound like hairier or anything? <laughs> I don't think it goes to that. But I think, although if somebody I'd love said, to hear a hairy composition from you. <laughs> but I think if a director said to me, I don't really know how to explain it, but, you know, I think I need it to sound a little bit hairier or fluffier. I'd probably go, OK, you know, I could sort of work that out. I think I could sort of want, interpret it and I like it rather than can there be a bit more cello. So it sounds like actually instruments is almost incidental to how you think. So where do instruments come on for you? I think really, really early on, because it's all about mood. And then instruments also have their own personalities Mm -hmm. and their own souls. And also, as listeners, I think we have our own sort of relationships with instruments. So there might be someone who has a really like profound relationship with an oboe. And which... (laughs) I mean, I love the oboe. And also, I thought that Mozart in the Jungle, which I re-watched recently because I love it. I'm so thrilled that there's a show about an oboist uh, (laughs) at the centre of it because it's such a wonderful instrument. And Morricone used it so beautifully. Mm. And anyway, so everyone has their own relationships with instruments. But I think it depends, particularly with film, with picture, on the sound of actors' voices. Mm -hmm. I find that I like to try and complement the timbre of their voices with the instruments that... I've chosen and I think landscape is so important and they have such a different effect because if I'm looking at a wide shot and it's just the sea it's going to you know my relationship with wind instruments comes really back to the sort of impressionist composers like Ravel and and Debussy and I really love the way that they sort of illustrate the sea Mm -hmm. and so I'll be really tempted to sort of use like really low like bass clarinets and wind instruments not in the way that we really sort of understand them usually like flutes sort of playing up in the higher echelons of their registers but I tend to kind of like to use an instrument but not necessarily in the way that we would traditionally yeah yeah. so it changes loads but I mean on Beach and Virginia Chanya had said at the beginning that she, under no circumstances, wanted a piano. Interesting. Yeah. Chanya Button, the director of Vita Virginia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was actually really interesting. That was the first time I wasn't allowed to use an instrument. Is that like really exciting for you? Or, yeah. are you, or is that when your brain, you know, when you're told not to think about something or do something that you always want to go to it? Well, that actually is in my character, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of say, I can't do something, I instantly want to go and do it. But with the piano, I thought it was so interesting. And her request in that way, made me understand so much of what she wanted because she didn't want it to feel or sound like a period score. And so the piano is just taken off the table. So then that was quite interesting. So I was like, OK, because that would have be, probably been my natural go-to when reading the script. Mm-hmm. I was certainly thinking about it. And when I was putting together kind of playlists, the piano was quite present. So it was quite dramatic when she said that this was her idea. And I loved it. It was so exciting because then suddenly I was really, really challenged. So I suppose, yeah, you do think about instrumentation quite early on. And when I'm doing demos and things, I tend to get the players in really early 
to sort of do things and we'll be sketching and, and experimenting. I mean, there was a TV show with the ABC murders that I did. That score ended up being quite stringy, but at the beginning, it was really windy. I had got this wonderful player in and he based sort of all the clarinets and all the saxophones and mm-hmm. I just had this great day and I workshop loads of music and some of it was quite strange and it was using all I knew I wanted it to be kind of an unusual score and I took the sketches to the director and his sensibilities just weren't with wind instruments there was no way that I could convince him that winds should be the thing and so I went to strings which worked but it was just that sort of interesting thing and it was it didn't mean that it, the music, it wasn't working. It was the sort of texture of it that, couldn't, mm. that wasn't landing with him. So it's a journey. Yeah. You're talking mostly so far about players and acoustic instruments, pianos, strings, and so on, wind instruments. Mm. A score like Vita Virginia has a quite a large electronic element in it as well, which is, I guess, something that may be a bit less spontaneous, a bit less something that just kind of comes out of the ether. How does that develop in the process of it, a score developing, knowing that we're going to bring in these electronic treatments as well? That was really wild, yeah. <laughs> coming up with that, that score and the process of giving ourselves the permission to do it because it was scary because it really wasn't the obvious thing. But I remember, so Chani had been talking about it, not having a period sound and also deliberately she didn't want it to be kind of deliberately feminine. She really wanted to find a sound that really balanced a masculine energy with a feminine energy and also because Gemma and Elizabeth are these two very very beautiful women if we'd layered very very traditional instruments Chania was sort of afraid that that would just be too distracting because then everything would be really beautiful and then we wouldn't really be listening to what the point that Chania was trying to make through telling that story because you have that bass in the very mm. first scene like the yeah. opening if you listen to it just on its own it builds to this like bassy boom, <laughs> boom, and it's just not Immediately, you know, this is a film about breaking the rules, right? That's yeah. What, that's kind of oh, what... Oh, I'm so pleased that you said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I got, because at that point, I think Virginia lights a cigarette, leans back in her chair, grins at the fact that Vita is essentially railing against the patriarchy on the BBC. <laughs> yeah. And immediately, like, in, and it's, like you say, wild. You wouldn't ever think to put that in. No. And it was really exciting when we first... I mean, yeah. the first cue that I think I sent Chania was when... I've been doing some sketches and she kept Chanya. I love Chanya. <laughs> Chanya, this is a really good example of sort of talking to me about music because she kept talking about lasers. She was like, I want lasers. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, how about we sort of go to a more sort of synthy kind of area and then like merge synths with strings. So in the broad sort of structure of the score, we start off very kind of electronic and then as they become more vulnerable, then we end the film with a basically completely exposed strings and all the electronics have sort of fallen away but I was experimenting with a singer's voice and thinking a lot about this idea of sort of androgyny in the music and something that wasn't so gendered and so took this voice and dropped the octave by loads and really sort of manipulated it and then just added some really minimal kind of electronic beats to it for when Vita first sees Virginia at a party and I sort of in that really scary, you know, in the way that I just sort of like sent it quickly to Chania and that's sort of like ripping off a plaster. You just got to send it. And I was like, can we do this? <laughs> <laughs> and Chania just sent me a load of fireworks back and she was just oh. like, oh my goodness, this is so exciting. And that was great. And then what we sort of decided to do with the beats, having this kind of kick drum. So Elizabeth was wearing, when I went, she was wearing this um, lapel mic that was picking up her heartbeat. 
so I said to Charlie, can I have that recording of the heartbeat? I'm sure we can work it in. And then I was like, well, hang on, my like maybe the sort of the heartbeat could be a kick drum. And we could sort of look at the tempo of Elizabeth's actual heartbeat when she was doing the thing. And then that became the kick. And then it just sort of became very electronic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we did have to, we kept checking in with the producers and we were like, is this it? Can we? And they were like, yes, keep going, keep going. You know, it feels great. It feels, you know, the story about the women being these kind of iconoclasts and exactly as you say like breaking the rules and Chanya kept saying you know shock horror you know we're not using a piano and she was thrilled by this you know the idea that it was going to surprise a few people and potentially kind of upset a few people which I think it did as well you know but that's never a bad thing I don't think think. because that's absolutely you know a piece of composed film score which works almost like an experimental piece of music in its own right if you're using these found audio sources incorporating the composition but I do think it's a great way to work using found sounds Mm. and when I did the episode of Black Mirror I really love using the voice I really do but making it into sort of an instrument you know and sort of disguising it and I asked for Miley's voice so I could make it into sort of bits of percussion it's more weirdly for me so that Mm. I know that within the fabric of the score is the actual material I mean it is always lovely to bring in a musician and ask them to play a beautiful line but there's a certain amount of messing around that I do before that (laughs) (laughs) that was one of my questions was about if you're writing for a very well-known music star like Miley Cyrus in Rachel Jack and Ashley too yeah yeah? does it change the way that you approach score and music if music is so much in the fabric of the plot and the story that was quite an interesting episode because they had already done this arrangement of the nine inch nails song and made it into this pop track which was wicked so when i came in i was like this is amazing because this is creating the i i know exactly where i am musically we know that we're going to end up you know the original version of it and so really the score for that needed to be very very subtle and just i think needed to draw the connection between the two sisters and Miley's character. Mm. The Fleabag theme is a big slice of guitar. Mm. Um, And what makes that really stand out for me as a fan of heavy metal and rock music is how it is a a riff-based band theme, which is different to maybe what else you're working in. Can you tell us a bit more about how you settled on that (laughs) as a theme for Fleabag? Again, it's a guitar being almost a theme for the character as well, I suppose. Yeah, oh, definitely. That was so much fun. And also, you know, when I was composing Fleabag, I was still in my bedroom studio. You know, I really it was because it was quite a long time ago in a way. It was fun because it all felt very, you know, there was a very casual and also my sister, you know, we work really well together. And it's a, there's always really good communication. But anyway, we knew the content and the feeling of who that character was because of having done the play. So knew that she was a very sort of unapologetic character, knew that at the end of episode one of the first season that we didn't want to feel kind of sorry for her or that she was weak or that she'd done anything. You know, it was just really like she is just punching her way through life and she's just going to bulldoze her way through. Mm -hmm. And she understands, you know, her own complexity, but she's sort of going to go 100 miles an hour. And so we were sort of thinking, okay. And also I kind of, when I was at school, I suppose, I was really into like Silverchair and... (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So I kind of have this sort of like quite hidden passion for that sort of music, which I've never really like. Sorry, Silverchair. (laughs) Australian post grunge band. Okay. So yeah, you know I love it and Nirvana, obviously, of course. So anyway, Phoebe and I were talking about it, and I don't know. I just had this sort of 
idea. I was thinking, well, maybe, I don't know, sort of worked it out, played it, put some drums in it. You know, this is all demo stuff. So sort of like on my keyboard, sort mm. of put some... Um, and is this in your bedroom? It's totally in my bedroom. It's like the bed's here. And I'm <laughs> like literally like that. And um, so I'm thinking, oh, this is really... And also I know when I'm having fun with something because A, time seems to stop. And usually I end up standing if I like an idea that I'm doing and I sort of don't realize that I'm doing any of these things until I sort of anyway but by the end of making this demo which probably actually didn't take very long sometimes it you know the the thinking about things takes a long time and then the doing of it sometimes doesn't and then sent it to Phoebe and literally like a minute later she's just sent me a video back of Harry, the director, Lydia, the producer, and Gary, the editor, all listening to it. And they were just headbanging in the... <laughs> and it was great. And they were all like, yes, and that was it. And I really loved doing it because it satisfied that grungy place mm -hmm. that I really like to go and don't usually get an opportunity to. And also the little things like when it goes, wah, wah, mm -hmm. that bit, it always made me go so, <laughs> it's so funny you mention that because it is a thing among fans of tv shows to try and sing the title along with the theme tune right oh right is it oh, yeah. i definitely know people who try to sing some mad men along with the sighing oh yeah tune, sure so. actually i can completely imagine <laughs> so now now forevermore we'll, now you we'll sing fleabag along <laughs> yeah. with the squeals. it was so much fun even though it's a teeny tiny bit of music i'm really proud of that one mm -hmm. because i really feel like it sort of captured the Having lived with the character for so long, probably for by the time we got to doing the pilot, I'd probably known that character for kind of four years or something. So really what is testament to actually, this is why I sort of really like to be on board, like I was saying earlier, just really early on, because I know that for me, I really need to absorb all that information and it just needs to sit there for a little bit. And then it will come out in a way of some sort. <laughs> no, it's, it's so good. And it's exactly as you say, she bulldozes through life and that sort of grinding guitar riff throughout mm. feels very much very strident like that. Yeah. No, it really does fit really well. And for somebody who likes that sort of music, it's so rare to hear that in whatever sort of score. So I, you've mentioned now a few sort of instruments that you reach to first. Maybe it depends on the project, but you have a home instrument. Is that the piano? Or? The piano, yeah. yeah. I mean, I started the piano when I was four and the piano really became my way of, it was my go-to safe space, the way that I could sort of express myself. And it was lucky actually, because when I was at school, I was on a music scholarship. So I was actively encouraged to like go and practice and practicing was just my favorite thing to do in the whole world. And then when I did music at university, I'd be just sort of like practicing for 10 hours a day or something like insane. <laughs> but I love it. It's something about the discipline of it. And you can feel yourself improving. And that is obviously very satisfying. It was very exciting because I was given a baby grand piano when I was, I think it was like from my like 18th and 21st birthday my parents gave me one and when I left university obviously I didn't have anywhere to put it because I was living in mm -hmm. <laughs> like tiny tiny places and so we put it in storage and so it's been in storage for about 10 years eight years or so and um, I just took it out and it's now in my <gasps> studio and oh, it's so like exciting. it's so fun and then it was so interesting because over lockdown like I just really felt like I couldn't write anything and then as soon as we got the piano out I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote it was oh, really wow. nice are there any instrument? I know you don't, you know, necessarily go instrument first, but are there any instruments that you've sort of been dying to get in to a piece or a composition and just haven't quite managed to shoehorn in yet? Oh my god, definitely the harmonica. <laughs> really? Ooh, yes. You mentioned Ennio Morricone. Oh yeah. Using the harmonica. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I really, really have been thinking about it of how to do a piece with just 
harmonicas. Would you pick a project purely based on the fact that you could just do a harmonica <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But it would be more interesting to me, I think, to sort of, if sometimes I think it's, if you have a sort of surprising sound yeah. like that, but just to have, a, if I, you know, in my head, to have a kind of layer, because I do like the harmonium and those like reedy. I'd written harmonium, I was going to ask you yeah, about. Yeah, so I one. love those sort of sounds. And so I'm interested in what happens to the harmonica. If you play the harmonica and then process it through lots and lots of effects and reverbs and things like that, and then maybe drop it down so it's sort of really bassy and maybe slow it down and then like layer it loads. I'm pretty excited about doing that. So that might be just something that, no one maybe wants that, so I have to just do it myself. But when you come on to a project that might already have had composition kind of already in place, so like War and Peace, mm. I think you're credited with having like additional music by. Mm. What does that mean and how does that then affect your process when you're sort of having to fit in, I suppose? Well, are you having to fit in? Yeah, definitely. So that means that you have the main composer who is employed to to write the score and come up with the themes and come up with the bulk of the material. It's often the case with multi-episodic series when there's an awful lot of music to write and there's not very much time and it can get very stressful. Mm -hmm. And it happens in films as well. So sometimes, you know, you're brought on to just write a few cues here and there. I mean, that's it truly to sort of help out. But you're using the material that the composer has already done the groundwork. And so then you're sort of borrowing those themes and using them, which is actually a lovely way to work. And with Martin Phipps, who was writing the music for War and Peace, did that process, actually. I didn't write that much on War and Peace, but just the sort of being around him and understanding how he... Because he's very minimal, and I don't think he approaches it in a very classical way. I think he approaches it in a sort of different way, but always less is more. And, I mean, he was really brutal at times. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which was brilliant. I love it. I really do. I love people being direct, because it just means that they really know what they want. Mm -hmm. So like always just tell me I don't like it. Yeah. Just tell me and I I'll be your friend forever, you know. <laughs> it's, like, it's true rather than Peter about the bush just sort of I don't know, it just seems like a really long way around. Yeah. And there's not enough time usually. Mm -hmm. So with Martin it was great because he would say, No, that's not working or yes that is and so additional music composers I guess it is varied. Some people will write more. But I think usually it's just sort of you're there to support the composer really and it's very common and when you have these really defined characters that run all the way through do you have to think about sort of individual themes for them as well as the series as a whole and the plots that's going on and the sort of ups and downs and the cliffhangers etc mm. or does that not really come into play necessarily in a series because you know certain films have such and such as theme mm. does that happen in series oh yeah I think so I think themes are really important, but they don't necessarily have to be a big tune. It mm. can just be a sort of sound or it can be a little like phrase or it can be a rhythmic thing. And usually when I start composing, if it's for, say, a TV series, they would have sent me some sort of very loose edit of an episode or maybe three episodes. And then I'll sort of watch them and watch them and re-watch them over and over again. And then I'll choose one scene and I'll just ask everyone to sort of leave me alone for a few days. <laughs> You'll be there in your bedroom standing up and down. And then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> while I'm doing that and I'll pick one scene that feels pivotal so uh, maybe it's a love scene or it's a maybe it's a big argument or something like that and then I'll write that and then I'll try and sort of find a theme for that character and I, I think themes are really useful because you can get a lot of material out of a theme you know you can slow it down speed it up change the key turn it upside down and when you have a good theme I mean we all know like in film music a good 
theme, even Johan Johansson's. They're not that musical, but they are so recognisable as sort of textures. Mm. And with characters, I find it really important. Mm. I think landscape, I think, you know, it can have a theme because I think often, depending on the way that story is being told, the landscape can be just as much of a character. It's interesting with when you're doing multi-episodic TV, you can reuse music. And that's where a music editor is so important and brilliant is because if you're doing like episode 10 of something, your music editor becomes completely invaluable because then they'll be taking something that you might have written in episode three and splicing it together with something that you've written in episode six and then making a sort of new cue out of it. So they're hugely brilliant and useful for that. They compose as well with yeah. your material. How much are you involved in the actual performance and recording of a score? Or do you just hand it all over once it's signed off? And then... Oh, no, loads, loads, loads. It's like the best bit of the whole process. <laughs> it really is. It's like Christmas every single time because <laughs> you get to work with the musicians and then they're interpreting your work and then it grows taller in that way because they're sort of injecting it with that. So usually when I've finished it, there'll be a process of kind of, it depends on what it is, but because usually, you know, you've usually got an orchestrator on board, if it's orchestral. So we didn't have this on Vita and Virginia because it was just solo strings I used because the budget was just tiny and then all the electronics were just done on a laptop. So, but with Vanity Fair and with sort of like small ensembles, it goes through the orchestrator and then you're in the control room and then with mm. lots of other people and... Yeah, you just got to go. You got to go get it. And it's really exciting. It's wonderful. It's the best bit because it's the musicians really. I mean, you know, and you hear it and all the ideas that you've had. And it's wonderful for the director and the producers to hear that. And I love that bit of the process. And is that the first time? I know there are various music programs and systems where you can actually, when you orchestrate something, hear everything as a, as a synthesized orchestra. But is that the first time you're hearing what's been in your head all along? Yeah. And what's that like? Oh my god, it's wild! <laughs> it's so it's it'll never get old. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it just gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Michael Leader here is gagging to ask a question oh, yeah. about the well, hot priest. Exactly. So, yeah. So so almost bringing together lots of the threads we talked about just now. So you said that the opening theme to Fleabag is the theme of the character come the second series how does one score a sexy priest I mean it took some conversation <laughs> <laughs> but you know a lot of that chemistry was already there and you know Andrew did such a phenomenal oh, yeah. job mm -hmm. and we'd had lots of conversations about that about what that score should be and Phoebe actually had been very clear about what she wanted in terms of mm -hmm. the choral music and then also because it was the church and what I'd done is I'd written the music and recorded it and then Gary the editor because I was sort of still in sort of a demo sort of process there and then he put the music on that bit in episode four because they couldn't it was an interesting Gary I love Gary Dolner so much he's such a genius but he was using the music to sort of cut to basically mm -hmm. without using any term and then when he put that bit of music on there and then sent it through and he was like, we got it. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. that's it. So, so you hadn't consciously scored that for that scene. It was more of a general character bit that was, oh, that's that's how these yeah. this, the magic of yeah. all this behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, wow, it's really. Right. And that was because we knew that that was the a sound that that was working. And Gary was sort of getting excited. And then he was sort of moving through the episodes and sort of choosing moments that he particularly wanted to look at and he put it on there and, and what was really sort of exciting as well 
is that the way he'd cut it and the rhythm of the music, the music just matched the cuts. Yeah, yeah. So rhythmically, it was sort of all talking to each other kind of at the beginning. And that was really exciting. So then the Gary and I were like, well, there's some sort of really exciting kind of synergy going on here. For those of us who aren't choral connoisseurs, could you take us through the process of when Phoebe says choral is the direction to go in, how you then sit down and come up with these themes and how it then becomes a finished piece? Yeah. <laughs> Leave us through all that. Well, broadly, Phoebe was like, OK, it should be this sort of sound. And then I sort of went away and did it. My interpretation of it was that there was a real humanity in, again, mm-hmm. hearing voices. And also it was a little bit more mature. Mm-hmm. So that was my take on let's use some mm-hmm. choir. So then what I did was started us off with a boys choir because the series is, you know, it's a coming of age, really. And Mm. that sort of search for independence from lots of different things, from self, from family, from all things. So I started with the boys choir. And then by the time we get to the end of the series, it's just adults. And so that we've created a kind of interesting shape so that we've sort of all grown up Mm. together. So that was the kind of broad process and that was my understanding of what my interpretation of what the choral music should be and then I really just went away and wrote loads and loads and recorded it and then Gary and I have this bin that we talk about which is an audio bin in the computer and I just sent him all sorts just everything and he puts it in the bin and then over the period of the edit he can just like, access it and he just it's not a trash it on the bin. picture yeah it's no. not a trash bin it's sort of, I don't know why we call it the bin I've heard that before it's an audio like, bin. Yeah, yeah I sort of wish it wasn't called the bin but, you know, I sort of, but it is. <laughs> it's like, so Gary's really as much a path, you know, especially with Fleabag because of the way he cuts it rhythmically. I'll write a kind of complete cue and then he'll cut it off, you know. And so mm-hmm. he will sort of do those things as well. So he's as much a part of that musical shaping as well, I think. In a funny sort of way, I feel like, my responsibility with Fleabag was to come up with the sound and the sense of it and the energy and the personality of it. And then Gary did a lot of the actual structuring of it, you know, and yeah. So I really want to talk to you about Emma, which came out earlier this year. Was Feels it? like a long time I know. ago. Yeah, it was 2020. Yeah, yeah. I know. Oh, it was <laughs> mad. It was about 20 years ago. So Autumn DeWild had a very sort of particular specific vision for Emma and what I remember the most about watching it was like how rhythmic it looked and like the patterns that she made in the characters and like the symmetry and everything like that of even just Emma's face but also like seeing these girls almost like the handmaidens kind Mm -hmm. of all walking together how is that reflected in your music and your work and how did you collaborate with Autumn because I know that she's very like musically minded herself I mean absolutely Autumn because of her photography career you know she's photographed every musician sort of under Mm. the sun and and is encyclopedic about music so when I first met with Autumn it was the greatest it was I'll never forget it it was we had dinner and she talked to me about music for the sort of entire time her experience of it and also what she thought you know, that she wanted for Emma. And it was so specific. Mm -hmm. Everything that we see in the final film, it's really, it's one of the first times I think I've ever sort of seen this happen. Is it everything that she said on that very first meeting, even before that I got the job, is there on the picture. Everything from the costumes, the colours, the rhythm of it, the music. We really kind of got there and she was so sure. 
That's pretty rare, right? It's not happened to me before like that. I mean, I've not worked with that many directors, but it was really astonishing to me that it was so clear. And she had this wonderful pitch that she'd shown to Working Title when she was, you know, going for the job and it was absolutely beautiful and everything in the pitch was exactly what we see on the screen it's so really extraordinary anyway but we were talking about Peter and the Wolf and Benjamin Britten and Prokofiev and those composers that were important to her and also those pieces of music because Peter and the Wolf is very very story led Mm. and the instruments are used to give characters their sort of personalities and they're really sort of personified almost and she really wanted that. And so then because of her musical pedigree, she loves a hook. And so she all she wanted was like, she was like, it's got to be really, really hooky. So that was the sort of brief, uh-huh. really. And also she talked a lot about this kind of Bugs Bunny effect, that the music would slightly be kind of chasing the action. <laughs> and almost as if behind the camera was a live orchestra and the conductor was sort of following the action in sort of real time. So she was, this is how she was describing what she wanted the music to feel like. So... I mean, an amazing description. There's real clarity in that. And also she wanted the music to really flatter the voices. She also really, really knew that she wanted opera in it because she told me that Room with the uh, Room with the View is one of her favourite films. Mm-hmm. And she loves the way opera is used in that to sort of point out the kind of vanity of those characters. And so then we used opera in Emma to really poke fun at, at Emma's own mm-hmm. vanity. So... It was all very, very clearly sort of mapped out. And then it was just really a question of finding the themes. And then when we found them, then it w- then we were off. One thing we love talking to our guests about is where inspiration comes from. If away from work, you want to bathe in something where you take inspiration from great other work. Sometimes a production designer may go to a, an art gallery, a costume designer may read great works of literature. What do you do when you're not working to find inspiration? I spend as much time outside as possible. I oh. walk and we'll just go to just go and try and find a mountain and just walk. <laughs> I mean, if it's a sort of lunch break, it's something that I'll right. just go around the corner. <laughs> but but I will, I'll try and... But also reading. Reading does so many things to my brain. It really settles my... Because it triggers my imagination in such a kind of 3D way, I find it so helpful and and I love it and practicing the piano those are probably the three things just a a final composing question Mm. when you're thinking about great film score tv score composers who comes to mind and what qualities do you look for in a film composer I think um the two are Ennio Morricone and Johan Johansson at the moment for me they really really are well Morricone for his melodies and his invention you know the whistling and and the sort of weird instruments that he uses and being able to sort of really capture a sense of atmosphere and thematically I just think they're so beautiful and and Johan Johansson I think really for very similar kind of reasons so creative in the use of instrumentation and texture and really using kind of music as a language but not in a traditional way I find that very, very inspiring. That's wonderful. So we have this big imaginary rap party, which you're invited to, as are all our other guests, and you're allowed to bring a plus one, someone else from the crew that you'd love to get a drink with and have a chat with and learn more about their craft. Who would that be? Oh, basically DOPs I absolutely am obsessed with. Right. and then, But who is the DOP of Blade Runner? Deacons. Roger Deacons. Yeah, Roger Deacons. I almost would like to know that what he's reading at the moment you know I know that sounds <laughs> as, but I would like to know actually what makes him tick to what take how his brain I would like to know how his brain works <laughs> wouldn't we all yeah <laughs> I really would because it's so 
magnificent what he does. And I am a sci-fi fan, so... Isabel Wallerbridge, thank you so much for joining us at the wrap party. And uh, now we're going to go and get sloshed, right? Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you to Isabel Wallerbridge for talking with us today. You know what? That was so cool hearing about that theme from Fleabag being composed literally just on a guitar that was lying around in the bedroom. It's so casual, but also like the hot priest theme and the boy choir to man choir stuff. You know, when you're obsessed with a show and you want to know everything about it, I feel like now with Fleabag, I got that extra layer, which I never had and I always wanted. I feel entrenched. We've dug deep into Fleabag. And lucky enough, listeners, if you wanted to dig deep into Fleabag on Prime Video Now, both season one and season two of Fleabag are available to stream. And if you want to follow through on Isabel's recommendation, Mozart in the Jungle is also on Prime Video too. So in the show notes of this episode, you can find links to watch even more of Isabel's work, Emma, Vanity Fair, Vita and Virginia no pianos, and lots more there. Rihanna, I think you're forgetting something. There's also a link for people to listen to some silver chair, headbanging, optional but strongly advised. (laughs) We've also put in Claude Debussy's La Mer in there too, as Isabel said that she loved listening to Debussy's compositions about the sea. Another absolutely fantastic guest for the rap party. It's always good to get the music sorted. And you know, now that I know there'll be some 90s alt-rock on the playlist, (laughs) maybe I'll even be living it up on the dance floor too. Mosh pit? I'll start it. <laughs> Rap Party with Prime Video is a Little Dot Studios production for Prime Video. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It is produced by Annie Hughes, Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel, with additional research from Nicole Davis. Our original music is by Axel Cacoutier. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Sandra Boucher and Sam Mason. If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the party.